Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. Here are your hosts, Bill Fraser and Tony Sartu. Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. I'm Bill. And I'm Tony. And we're going to explore our love for music by sharing some facts and our thoughts about what I consider to be some of the best albums from the most recent Rolling Stone Top 500 album list. And today's album is Hunky Dory by David Bowie. Hunky Dory was released on December 17th in 1971. And when it was originally released, it sold about 5,000 copies. So it wasn't a big success. It later grew in popularity and stature. And on the Rolling Stone 2003 list, it was number 107. On the 2012 list, it was number 108. And on the most recent 2020 list, it was number 88. So let's talk a little bit about Bowie and his background. He was born as David Robert Jones, and he actually had a fairly normal home life. He lived with his parents and his half-brother, Terry Burns, and his brother was about 10 years older, but he and Terry were very close. And he really got introduced to a lot of things by Terry. Terry really was the person who introduced him to Buddhism and beat poetry and philosophy and the occult. He was the person who really got him interested in things like Aleister Crowley and Arthur C. Clarke, the occultist and the science fiction writer. So he really connected connected him with a lot of different things that gave him influences in later life. So Bowie got into music relatively early, and as a teenager, he started with saxophone and then went on to guitar and picked up a lot of other instruments. And he worked with his friends at the time to form different bands and really try to get into the music scene. One of those friends was a guy named George Underwood, who actually would play a really large role in David Bowie's aesthetic and David Bowie's life. And what happened was in 1962, they were both 15, and as 15-year-old do. They fall for girls in school, but it just so happened they actually fell for the same girl and they wound up getting in a fight. And George punched David Bowie in the eye and it caused a serious injury to Bowie's eye to the point where he had to have multiple surgeries and was hospitalized with that injury. And that injury would actually cause the visual aesthetic of what Bowie's eyes looked like, where you had one eye where it was fully dilated and it looked like it was a different color. So his left eye, where the pupil was fully dilated, looked like a different color than his right eye. And it actually really set off his face and gave him that really unique look. So Bowie actually remained friends with Underwood, you know, kind of like you and I remained friends after our little tussle in, in high school tone, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So Bowie and Underwood remained friends and Underwood actually did the album artwork for Hunky Dory as well as Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. So Bowie really hopped from band to band at the time. What wound up happening is he was performing as Davy Jones. But to those of us mm. who know the monkeys, there was another Davy Jones. There was Davy Jones from the monkeys and he was worried that he was going to get confused with that Davy Jones. So he changed his name and ultimately he picked Bowie because of Sam Bowie and the Bowie hunting knife. His first album, David Bowie, was released in 1967, self-titled. His second second album, better known as Space Oddity, but also self-titled, was released in 69. And neither one of them was incredibly successful other than the track Space Oddity. That was followed up by The Man Who Sold the World. And really where we were is you get to 1970 and Bowie's not famous. He's not famous. He's not known. He really was not a commercial success at that point in time. So he had a manager, Ken Pitt, that he just didn't think was serving him well. So he fires Ken Pitt. He brings on a new manager, Tony DeFries, who's an attorney. And Tony DeFries is the, I'm going to make you a star kid type manager. And they basically decide that they're going to remake a lot of the things. So Bowie goes on a tour in the US in 1971. This is in 
the lead up to Hunky Dory. And he was supposed to perform. It was supposed to be a concert tour, but it couldn't be a concert tour because he had the wrong visa. What winds up happening is he uses it a promotional tour. He goes and travels across the US and he falls in love with the US. He absolutely gets enamored by all things US. And you see that kind of play out in the music that comes into Hunky Dory. He's got a whole section of Hunky Dory that's kind of an homage to, to things that he fell in love with in the US. Bowie goes back to England. He's working on songs. He's got 10 demos. He's ready. DeFreeze gets him out of his recording contract. So he doesn't have a recording contract. And they basically go into the studio and they're ready to record. Yeah. And you mentioned those demos because having those demos, they were nearly done. And he just needed to get the studio artist in to help him lay the tracks. And they recorded the album in two weeks. So he really did all that homework and they were ready to roll with that. All right, Bill, let's take a minute to revisit the music scene heading into 1971. A good place to start is with the big four of classic rock. The Beatles broke up in 1970, and George shocks the world with All Things Must Pass. The album ends the year at number one and continued in the top spot for the first seven weeks of the year. John puts out Imagine, and Paul releases Ram. Many think these are the best solo albums from John, Paul, and George. Meanwhile, the Stones release Sticky Fingers, later joined by Led Zeppelin IV and Who's Next?, all seven of these albums are in the top 500. And 1971 would be a monumental year in music if we stopped there. But, but there's more. So much more where that came from. Marvin Gaye's What's Going On and Joni Mitchell Blue are both released in 71. These were pegged at number one and number three, respectively, on the top 500. Carole King was number one for 15 weeks with Tapestry, which is on the list at number 25. And Janice is number one for four weeks with Pearl, making the list at number 259. And you've got the Allman Brothers, Fillmore East. You've got Harry Nilsson, Nilsson Schmilson. You've got just this amazing kaleidoscope of different sounds that were going on in 1971. Yeah, American Pie, Aqualung, Tupelo Honey. I mean, everything you could imagine was coming out then. And with all of this incredible music released in 1971, the top-selling album of the year was the soundtrack to Jesus Christ Superstar. When I first saw this, I was shocked. But the more I thought about it, it made sense. In a groundbreaking year in music, that musical was certainly a total game changer. So let's touch on some things that were going on in 1971 in general. So we talked a little bit about the music of 1971. 1971, the Vietnam War is still going on. Nixon's the president. You've got the Attica riot. You've got Gloria Steinem with the Address to Women of America. In the world, you've got NASDAQ was founded. Starbucks was founded. FedEx was founded. Southwest Airlines was founded. Greenpeace was founded. And Disney World in Orlando wow. opened. So this is like a lot of really new and different stuff is going on. The world was changing drastically. So Tony, why don't we move on to a little bit of info about the album. Sounds good. So we mentioned earlier that the album was recorded in only two weeks. It was produced by David Bowie and Ken Scott, who was an engineer on Bowie's two prior albums, and he would go on to co-produce the next three albums, including Ziggy Stardust. The band that plays on the album is Mick Ronson on guitar, Trevor Boulder on bass, and Mick Woodmansey on drums, with a little bit of an assist from session keyboardist Rick Wakeman, who we will talk about in a little bit. So that band, with the exception of Wakeman, would go on to become the Spiders from Mars. The album was recorded at Trident Studios in London, and, and Trident is a pretty famous studio, and we're going to learn a little bit more about that in a bit. But now we're going to talk about the album art. 
So the album art is really fascinating on this one. So I love the album cover tone. It's a really amazing image of Bowie that's touched up, colorized, pastel colors, very Andy Warhol colors, but it's an old-timey type photo. So you've got the David Bowie as an old-time starlet type photo where it's actually a photo from a Marlena Dietrich photo book that he was imitating the pose that she was doing in that photo book. And that's the cover. And I think it really is just an amazing album cover. That cover also had some significant on the sales of the album because the record company knew that he was going into the Ziggy Stardust phase because he had you know a lot of demos and stuff already so they knew where he was going he knew he was about to reinvent himself and the record company was like well we've got this this weird album cover and he's going in a new phase and they just really didn't feel comfortable promoting the album knowing that there was going to be a drastic shift so that was actually a contributor to why the album didn't sell well initially that striking album cover is a part of that story. All right, so that's the album info and art. So we're going to go to a new segment called Something That You Might Not Know. So Bill, why don't you educate us a little bit on some interesting nuggets? So I'm going to expand a little bit on the Trident Studios piece. So Trident Studios was an upcoming studio at the time. And Trident Studios was very different than Abbey Road, where Ken Scott had done the majority of his work at that point in time. So Ken Scott, the co-producer of the Hunky Dory album, was an engineer for Abbey Road Studios. And he was an engineer on pretty much all of the early Beatles albums, all of the Beatles albums, period. And at the time, he was moving to Trident Studios. And at Trident Studios, it was a very different vibe. You had Abbey Road, which was a very corporate suit and tie type studio. And Trident was really a very casual, workmanlike, relaxed environment. And what Trident was best known for was this 100 plus year old C. Beckstein handmade piano. And this piano, this instrument was something that was a draw for that studio. And what you hear is when you hear tracks like Life on Mars and other tracks on the Hunky Dory album, you hear this beautiful, bright piano. It's the same piano that you hear on Hey Jude. It's the same piano that you hear on all of the early Queen albums. It's the same piano that you hear on a lot of Elton John's early albums. It's the same piano you hear on Genesis albums and a lot of other famous acts at times. So this instrument has this amazing, rich history being a part of some of the best songs and best albums that we've heard ever. So I find that completely fascinating, Tony. Well, you know, so along with the piano goes the piano player, right? So Rick Wakeman as we mentioned, was the piano player for this album, but he had just an absolutely spectacular 1971 as well. So Rick Wakeman, as a lot of you will know, eventually joins Yes as their keyboard player, but at this time, he's not with Yes yet. He's a session musician. He's also got a band, but he's primarily a session musician playing on other artists' albums when they're recording. So he's working on Hunky Dory, but that's not the only thing he's working on. In 1971, he's playing the piano for Morning Has Broken by Cat Stevens. And that's just an incredible song and incredible keyboards. He's also playing keyboards on Get It On by T-Rex. That's, <laughs> can you think that's of amazing. two songs <laughs> that are more different than Get It On and Morning Is Broken? Well, three songs, Add in Life on Mars, like, it's like yeah. a huge right. continuum. Yeah. Right. And But not only that, he plays on three tracks on Madman Across the Water. You mentioned Elton John recording there. Well, on Madman Across the Water, the guy playing the piano wasn't Elton John. It was Rick Wakeman. So Rick Wakeman has just an absolutely spectacular 71. He gets invited by Bowie to join the Spiders from Mars. But on the same night, literally the same night that Bowie extends that invitation, he gets a call from Yes. And they say, hey, do you want to join Yes? And he decides that he thinks that he has more opportunities for creativity and to make his own contributions with Yes than he would with the Spiders from Mars. And he was right. And Bowie agreed with him. So the rest is history. I didn't know that Wakeman was on all those other tracks that 
year. That's an amazing year. Right. So, whew. All right. So I think we should move into our overview of the album. Let's talk about the tracks, which is the main part of what we do every episode. All right. So we have 11 tracks on this album. And the first one, it leads off with Changes. So Changes is one of Bowie's most famous songs ever. You hear the music and you know the song instantly. It's instantly recognizable. And it's just an amazing song. One of the things about this album was he really wrote it on piano versus where his previous stuff was really written more on guitar and you hear that come through in most of the songs on this mm-hmm. on this album and very much so on changes the other thing that i find super interesting is as a child learning instruments bowie's first instrument was saxophone so wow. he plays the sax on changes and you hear him play the sax on the rest of the album as well so the saxophone is bowie i never knew that i didn't know that either that's fascinating so changes is an iconic song and frankly i hadn't listened to this song in decades because i heard it you know so much you know, as a teenager when I first got my copy of Changes Bowie, the Greatest Hits album, which by the way is why like, I actually don't know any of these songs on Hunky Dory except for Changes because Hunky Dory isn't represented on that Greatest Hits album. So before this project, what I knew about Bowie was that Changes Bowie, Greatest Hits, the Christmas song with Bing Crosby, and then Let's Dance, the album that came out around 84 or so. So on Changes, I think the lyric, the one I'm going to call attention to is, so I turn myself to face me, but I've never caught a glimpse of how the others must see the faker. I'm much too fast to take that test. And I think that that's him talking about his chameleon his chameleon personas and how he's always changing both his appearance, his personalities, his musical style. And he's changing so fast that even though others might think of him as a phony, he doesn't even know because he's changing so fast he doesn't have enough time to recognize himself as a faker. You know, you see that coming up with him. You see the different personas that he connects to in the, in the the following albums. He very much is somebody, when you hear interviews with him, he had a hard time being David Bowie on stage. He had a really easy time being a persona on stage. And you see that on the, the next album with him being Ziggy Stardust and then on Aladdin Sane with him playing the character of Aladdin Sane. And then the next album, Halloween Jack, is the character on Diamond Dogs. And then the Thin White Duke is a character over the, the string of albums after that. And then lastly, Black Star, brilliant album, the album that was released right before he died, he had a character of the Blind Prophet. So he really changed changed and morphed and played different characters and different sounds throughout the course of his career. And this song epitomizes that. It's a brilliant song and it really wraps up who Bowie is very well. Great song. So we move to track number two, which is Oh You Pretty Things. And this is also a great song. I'm going to tell a little story about Oh You Pretty Things in a moment, but I'll just call out some lyrics worth noting. Let me make it plain. You got to make way for the homo superior and then homo sapiens have outgrown their youth. I'm not going to go into a whole Nietzschean spiel here. But believe me, there's going to be at least three songs on this album where there's a strong Nietzsche vibe. So I love Oh You Pretty Things. It is a just awesome song. He's a new father. Him and his wife, Angie, at the time had their son. And the song is really a sci-fi, futuristic, occult, Oh You Pretty Things, Homo Superior, My Son is going to be the leader of the, the human race. So it's it's really very interesting song. I enjoy it a lot. So this could have made the Something You Didn't Know segment, but the title, Oh You Pretty Things, is also a nod to a band, an English band called The Pretty Things. And they were a popular English R&B band in the 60s, and they're actually 
actually still recording today. So the pretty things. The founder was a guy named Dick Taylor, and Dick Taylor had back in the 60s been in a band called Little Boy Blue and the Blue Boys. Now, Little Boy Blue was performing and and was mildly successful, I suppose, but they were approached by Brian Jones to join his new band, and they agreed. So that new band was comprised of Dick Taylor, Mick Jagger, and Keith Richards. And then they joined up with Brian Jones to become the Rolling Stones. Dick Taylor then got into art school and said, you know what? I'm going to focus on art school. I'm going to leave the Stones. And he goes to art school and, you know, regrets, I guess. But he meets a classmate named Phil May and Phil May and he decide to start a band called The Pretty Things. And David Bowie apparently liked The Pretty Things and gives them a little head nod on this album. So then you've got up next at track number three, Eight Line Poem. Eight Line Poem is an absolutely beautiful song with just an amazing instrumental lead and then just eight lines of a poem. The piano and acoustic guitar on Eight Line Poem is masterful. It gets me every time I listen to it. The lyrics of the poem itself, I don't know that I connect so much with that, but the music is phenomenal on this track. I agree with you completely. I was an English major in college, but I was bad at it. But I do connect to that music and particularly the piano is great, but I really love Ronson's guitar work on that. It's just absolutely lovely. So Eight Line Poem is just a gem. Next track up is Life on Mars and Life on Mars is my favorite Bowie track of all time. Just a little bit of background on Life on Mars and the history of the song. In the liner notes of the album, the song is indicated that it's inspired by Frankie. In the late 60s, Bowie was approached by the manager of the Rolling Stones about an opportunity to write English lyrics to a song, a French song called Comme de l'habitude. So Bowie wrote a song and his song was called Even a Fool Learns to Love. And what wound up happening was the people that were looking for English lyrics didn't like Bowie's version of the song. And they wound up going with a different artist's wording to the song. And that artist was a popular songwriter and artist in his own right, Paul Anka. And Paul Anka wrote a little song that all of us might have heard of called My Way. And My Way is one of Frank Sinatra's biggest hits of all time. So the little song that Bowie wrote, he was angry about. (laughs) He was just livid that Paul Anka got it and Frank Sinatra. So when he was writing Hunky Dory, Life on Mars was really a parody and a poke at Sinatra and Anka. And he uses some of the chord progressions and some of the melodies from from My Way. And it's not the easiest to pick it out, but it's in there. The song is really representing a little girl who's in a movie theater. She's bored about her life. She's bored about the movie and she's bored with the people on screen. And that's kind of a poke to Hollywood. The film is a saddening bore. I've seen it 10 times or more. It's just a brilliant imagery. And I love the surrealistic components of the song. I love the music. I love everything about it, including there's one more interesting piece about the song. In listening to an interview with Ken Scott, when finishing up and doing the final edits of the song, they were doing the overdubs and the overlays of the song, and they had a piano piece that they wanted to bring back in. They re-record and they overplay on different parts of the tape to conserve tape and whatnot, and they had it. They had the final cut, they had everything they wanted, and they bring back in the piano piece. And if you listen to the song, if you listen to the, the last piece, when the piano comes back in, it starts to fade out a little bit. And what Ken Scott said in the interview that I heard was that in the studio in Trident, there was a phone that was right next to the recording studio. It was right next to where the musicians set up to play. And the phone wasn't really 
really there to receive calls. It was there to make calls. It was there for the studio artists to be able to call and find out where their next gig was, what time their next gig was. And it was just a fixture there. Well, as they're recording, what winds up happening is the phone is ringing. It randomly rings and the phone never rings. And Ronson answers the phone and he <laughs> proceeds to like curse out whoever's on the other end of the phone. So in this fade out, what Ken Scott had to do is he had to actually take it down so quiet so you can barely hear the phone ring and you can just hear someone starting to talk, but you can't really hear what's being said. And what he said is that the album would have never got <laughs> play on any of the British outlets if <laughs> any of Ronson's words came through. So if you really, really, really listen at the very, very, very end of the song, you can hear the phone ring. Well, he must have done a good job because I tried like heck to hear it and I couldn't pick it up. So that's a lot on Life on Mars and it's also my favorite song. So if since I think I have first pick in the draft, if I take it, I'm not taking it to spite you. I'm taking it because it's my favorite. So the, the one line that I'm going to point out here is in the middle of the song, now the workers have struck for fame because Lennon's on sale again. And I thought that, that was curious. That's not one I would have picked out initially until doing a little bit of research here. First of all, all I, when I was listening to it the first 20 times, I didn't know that it was Lennon as in John Lennon. I didn't know what I was thinking, but I guess I was thinking Lennon, like uh, Russian Lennon. But anyway, Anyway, it turns out that later on, a few years later, Lennon and Bowie would collaborate on the song Fame. So you've got this lyric, struck for fame because Lennon's on sale. And then later, John Lennon and Bowie would write and record Fame. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Okay, so now we've got our next track, Kooks. I'll tell you, this is not one of my favorites. So for me, I actually really like the track. It's grown on me the more I re-listen, to be very honest. And one of the things that was a huge influence for Bowie on this track is Neil Young. And if you listen to the song Till the Morning Comes on the Neil Young After the Gold Rush album and listen to Kooks, it, huge parallels in these songs. Like he was completely inspired by this song in playing Kooks. Really? So, yeah, 100%. Listen to the two songs back to back, you'll hear the parallels. I'm not a Neil Young guy, so I wouldn't have known that anyway, but um, I'll definitely check it out. All right, so our next track is Quick sand and this one closes out side one so this one is really it's it's haunting it's a little melancholy maybe that's not even strong enough but i really like this song it's also got some nietzschean references i'm tethered to the logic of the homo sapien and i think what he's talking about there is that he's thinking about an, another world and that's the, the logic of the homo sapien that uh, nietzsche is talking about and he's stuck doing that but he doesn't want to be thinking about you know something better he he wants to focus on the now and i think that that's what he's talking about there and then he closes with don't believe in yourself don't deceive with belief knowledge comes with death's release so it's like stop thinking about some stuff that we can't know about we're only going to know when we die so just live today and let the whatever comes next comes next we'll find out when we get there so I think those lyrics are incredibly powerful and the lead up to it with the I'm sinking in the quicksand of my thought and I ain't got the power anymore really is that dark, despairing, let it go. Don't think about it. Try to live your life. The piece for me that is really interesting is if you listen to the intro to the song, the opening verse is, I'm closer to the golden dawn, immersed in Crowley's uniform. Crowley, Alistair Crowley, the occultist, wrote a book, The Vindication of Friedrich Nietzsche. So Crowley was really wow. his intro his introduction to Nietzsche, the whole occultism vibe and whatnot. And you've Crowley is a really interesting character in and of itself. He was known as the wickedest man in the world at that time, that point in time. He's on the Sgt. Pepper album cover. There's a picture of him on the Sgt. 
Sgt. Pepper album cover. Jimmy Page purchases Aleister Crowley's house. He was a kind of connect the dots on a lot of this musical world at the time. And really interesting, like he was very out there occultist guy. You know, what you make me think of is growing up, like I think about when we're kids and, and you hear the adults talking about that rock music and it's Satan's music and it's like, oh, if you play it backwards and there's messages from the devil. And I remember thinking, God, these people are out of their minds. But you talk about all these connections to occultists and, you know, now I, I guess I can see why people, I mean, they might be wrong, but they're not coming out of left field. No, agreed. And Aleister Crowley called himself the Great Beast 666 and practiced ceremonial magic. That's who he was. Jeez. All right. Well, that's scary. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty crazy, right? That's nuts. So, okay. So that's the end of side one. So now we flip over to side two and we get the only non-Bowie composed piece. It's Fill Your Heart. And this is kind of done in a vaudevillian style. And it turns out, I think Tiny Tim actually recorded this song as well. Bowie and Tiny Tim. That's just another ridiculous match, I guess. But I believe Fill Your Heart to me is sort of like a palate cleanser for quicksand after that big downer. I think he's looking to flip the side and let's move on from this stuff. We're going to end our exploration of Nietzsche and we're going to start something new. And this is going to be our exploration of, you know, American music. And I think that Fill Your Heart is just meant to change the tone, change the mood and get us excited again. So I agree with you 100%. And it was one that you and I have discussed this a bunch of times. And I really didn't like the song the first probably 10 times I listened to it, to be very honest. But it's grown on me tremendously. And you kind of won me over with some of the thinking on it. And really looking at some of the wording in the song, it really does connect with Quicksand and the previous. And fear is just in your head, only in your head. Fear is in your head, only in your head. So forget your head. Right. Mm-hmm. So it really is very much connecting the thread and keep loving your thoughts, keep loving your mind. Fear's only in your head and you'll be free. And so I actually really like it on this album, having listened to it more and more and more and having talked it through with you. Yeah. So. Well, putting into context, right? Because these things matter. Placement in the album matters. The fact that you end side one and starting a new side, I think that this is absolutely intentional and he could have done anything. He, he had all of Ziggy Stardust pretty much in the can already, you know, so he had other stuff to do and he chose to do this song and i believe it's absolutely intentional yeah so the next track up is andy warhol and bill i don't understand why are you saying it like that because there's the whole interplay at the beginning of the song so ken scott and david bowie were in the studio and they're saying andy warhol and bowie corrects him and and they left it in the song they like the whole interplay of the repronunciation and whatnot and becomes a part of this song and this song is really the start of a three song arc which is really his homage to all things American at the time. And Andy Warhol Warhol was a huge influence on David Bowie. And he was somebody that he actually got to meet and got to experience his art when he was in the US traveling. And he wrote this amazing song. For me, the thing that I really love about this track is the guitar work on this track. It just rocks. I love it. Yeah, the music is pretty good. And I have to tell you that I actually chuckle every time I hear this song because there's a particular lyric in here that takes me back 
to high school. It's Andy walking, Andy tired, Andy take a little snooze. And it makes me think of our old pal Jerry and Jerry sleeping. You, you Every time you'd call his house, his mom would answer the phone and would be Jerry sleeping. So shouts to Jerry. So next up is the next on that three song arc. It's Song for Bob Dylan. Song for Bob Dylan is really done very much like a Dylan song. It's similar take to how Dylan did his Woody Guthrie homage. It's got a very Dylan vibe to it. And Dylan had just had a motorcycle accident. He was recuperating and he was really nowhere to be seen. And Bowie did this as very much in the, if you're not going to do it, I can do it. And I love the track and it really does sound like it could be a Dylan song. I appreciate the idea that Dylan's on the shelf and it's almost like to use a sports metaphor, next man up. I kind of uh, appreciate that aspect of it. I'm not the biggest Dylan guy, so maybe this doesn't appeal to me so much, but I do like that backstory. All right. So what's next is Queen Bitch. What do you think? So Queen Bitch is his tribute to the Velvet Underground. He was in the US. He saw the Velvet Underground and was blown away. He had listened to the music of the Velvet Underground. This was his Velvet Underground Iggy Pop inspiration, which really led to the inspiration for Ziggy Stardust. This song is tremendous. It's an absolute rock out. It is truly a a song that sounds like it's Velvet Underground of the time. It has just amazing guitar overlays and whatnot. And you've got the whole wall of sound component that comes through in a few different places in this album. It comes through in this song. It also comes through in Quicksand previously. And Ken Scott actually gives a hat tip to the, the George Harrison All Things Must Pass album for doing that, where they did the overlay of all of these different guitar pieces to really give a really rich sound. So for me, this song is absolutely phenomenal. It's one of the songs that every time I listen to it, I get a better appreciation for. Yeah, Queen Bitch is just an absolute banger. And it's really cool just the the way musical influences carry over through time. You know, so you've got Velvet Underground inspiring Bowie and Queen Bitch. And then 30 years later in 2001, Brandon Flowers is starting the band that would ultimately become The Killers. He's 20, just got dumped, and is a huge Bowie and Iggy Pop fan. What song might inspire a young broken-hearted Bowie fan? Queen Bitch, of course. The lyrical connections are obvious. Flowers sings, Now I'm falling asleep, and she's calling a cab, while he's having a smoke, and she's taking a drag. While Bowie sings in Queen Bitch, And I'm phoning a cab, because my stomach feels small. There's a taste in my mouth, and it's no taste at all. Now, it's not just the obvious lyrical similarities. Calling a cab, phoning a cab, stomach is sick, stomach is small. The melody, tempo, and chord progression are incredibly similar. Musically, these songs to me are much, much more obviously related than Life on Mars and My Way. Flowers has talked openly about this, so this isn't breaking news or anything. He borrowed from Bowie, and we are all darn lucky that he did. This song is now 20 years old and is an enduring 21st century anthem. Tony, I think that's something for me musically. That's what all great artists do. They're inspired by other artists. You listen to the Rolling Stones, like we're going to talk about in the next pod. They're very much American roots. You listen to Zeppelin, they're blues. You listen to all of these artists. They all have these inspirations. And you go to more recently with Robin Thicke and Blurred Lines, and I don't even hear it quite as much, but he had to pay out to Marvin Gaye's estate, which I think is ridiculous. But music is meant to inspire. And I actually love that it does, and that there's this connective thread that carries through from one generation to the next. And I think that's the beauty of it, to be very honest. You know who would absolutely agree with you, Bill? David Bowie. There's a story where James Murphy, who leads LCD Sound System, meets Bowie for the first time. And Bowie tells Murphy that he's a huge fan of his work. Murphy replies that, if you know anything about my work, 
you know I'm an enormous fan of your work because I steal from you liberally. Yeah. What does Bowie say back to Murphy? You can't steal from a thief, darling. Music has been building upon itself. That's what it does. You know, think about all the rap music and the sampling that's going on in hip hop and rap. I mean, I think it's brilliant. I and mean, we'll get to talk a little bit in the coming episodes on some rap albums that I know you're really excited about, Tony. I know, I know you can't wait. We might have some guest hosts for those. <laughs> all right. So let's, uh, let's uh, wrap up here with the Bule Brothers. What can you tell me about the Bule Brothers? So the Bule Brothers is a great closeout. It's a really melancholy feeling, epic type song that is just brilliant. And you've got a lot of the story. It's the Bule Brothers. You can hear story-wise in it how he might be alluding to some of his relationship with his brother who had mental illness. Interestingly enough, Ken Scott, the co-producer, says that when they went into the studio and he was asking Bowie about the lyrics, Bowie said, oh, never mind about the lyrics. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. I just wrote it for the American an audience so that they can read into it. Now, I don't know that I buy it, but there's just so many layers and it plays perfectly to who Bowie is and being a persona and what persona do you want to put out there? Do you want to be the guy who's sharing? Do you want to be the guy who's this or that? Really kind of fits for Bowie. I got to say, cue the cap music, Steve, because this whole album has subtext, you know, whether it's American music directly, Bob Dylan or indirectly Velvet Underground. And then you've got the Nietzsche stuff and he's directly talking about his family and being a father. This is crazy. Oh, I want to put something in so that the Americans can read into it. He's just making that up just to get a rise out of someone. It's all cap. I can say I don't disagree with you. You read the lyrics, just separate to listening to the song. It's hard to not make a connection to his relationship with his brother and his family and things that were just in his life. Yeah. So maybe he was actually trying to diffuse that and maybe make that a little more opaque and not make it so direct. And maybe that's why he was gaslighting us. So the other thing I found awesome in doing research for this is Bewley Brothers was a song that he really didn't perform live. I will put a link in the show notes, the description for the podcast episode to a recording. Bowie actually performed this live 30 years after Hunky Dory was released. And it is brilliant. Somebody had a camera out and got a full recording of it. And it's amazing. And just shows you how incredibly talented he says. He doesn't know if he's going to remember the words. He puts the words out in front of him on a stand because he doesn't know if he's going to remember and he just proceeds to kill it. Just brilliant. Which actually speaks to one of the things that I heard in the interviews with Ken Scott. Ken Scott said Bowie was, and Ken Scott, mind you, worked with the Beatles. He said Bowie was one of the best, if not the best artist he's ever worked with in the studio. And that typically his vocals, one take. Wow. Like, that's amazing. All right. So I guess we move into the song draft. Do we want to recap what happened with last week's draft? We absolutely want to recap <laughs> what happened with last week's draft. So Tony, as you recall, we asked our audience to go out and vote on who they thought won the song draft. And we're closing the poll as of right now. So I'm clicking no longer accepting responses. So Tony, I am very, very sad to tell you that you lost. <sighs> so we had 22 responses and by a margin of 59.1% to 40.9%, I won. I'm not surprised, you know, re-listening to the draft and getting some feedback. I really, I screwed it up. I choked. It's the first draft and I know exactly where it happened. I should have gone with the fly and I went with wild horses. I was completely and that's shocked what, you went with, yeah. with wild horses. Shocked. Absolute shame. Now, so I agree that I believe that I lost, but what I do have a question about is process because I just don't know if everybody who had thoughts on this responded. I know that I got a lot of text votes on my 
side and I just on my phone and <laughs> Are you I don't asking know for a recount. Is that what you're saying? I'm asking for an audit. <laughs> I don't believe that all the ballots were counted. I think there were some fake ballots. And as a matter of fact, I know there were fake ballots because some of the votes in the comments had some interesting write-ins. So, but some of those fake ballots, Tony, lead me to believe that they were not for me. Okay. Um... So the vote where the, the favorite song was the Coconut Mall music from Mario Kart, I don't think that was my vote. And so I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, there was some trolling going on and there's a few like references to some Mitski, some, some, some references, well. some reference, uh, multiple Taylor Swift mentions in favorite track on this album. So, yeah. So you're saying that I might have lost by even more? Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that if we truly audited, you might have lost by even more. All right. Okay. Well, I'll do better next time. All right. This is your opportunity. So you are up first on Hunky Dory. I picked the album, so you get to pick the first track. So where are you going? Well, I telegraphed this earlier. I'm going with Life on Mars. Just a wonderful song. We spent a ton of time on it, so I'm not going to say anything more. Life on Mars. Life on Mars at number one. I am going to go with Changes at number two. ch ch changes is my number two. All right. And uh, number three for me will be Queen Bitch. I was hoping you wouldn't go there and that I could get Queen Bitch. Darn, that's a great pick. Yeah, you're going to do good with number four too though yeah i'm gonna go with oh you pretty things at number four so far this is going exactly the way i ranked them so i think that we're pretty much aligned on this album Maybe it's because we've talked about it so much over the last two weeks. <laughs> I, think, I think probably, yes. <laughs> a little group think. Yes. Um, my next pick is going to be Bule Brothers. Um, I'm just going to say one other note on that. In the spirit of the uh, Jerry sleeping comment, when I first started listening to this album, I kept falling asleep by the time we got to the end. So I never actually heard Bule Brothers. So I thought that I didn't like it, but really I just didn't know it. And then when I finally was able to stay awake to the end, that's when I realized what a great song it is. So that's my next pick. Mine next pick is going to be quicksand which i just love the sinking in the quicksand of my thoughts i have to pick it yep all right so now i'm gonna go with andy warhol oh you're killing me i didn't think there was any way you would pick andy warhol oh my goodness I've grown to appreciate it more. So Andy I thought Warhol. I was I thought I was safe in letting it slide. Oh my goodness. I am shocked. Shocked, shocked, shocked that you picked Andy Warhol. Oh, oh my goodness. Ah. So oh, you're you're really like I've stunned you here. You have stunned me here. So I'm torn. I'm really, really, really torn. I think I'm going to go with eight line poem because I love the instrumental. So, so my strategy here was hoping that you would not go eight line poem here. And I was really looking forward to stealing that at number nine. So that didn't happen. Good pick. I'm going to go with Bob Dylan. And that leaves me with the cover, fill your heart, which I really have grown to appreciate. So I'm not unhappy having fill your heart. Now here you surprised me because I was convinced you'd go kooks and, and I would get fill your heart at the end I, I think i won anyway but kooks is just gonna give me that half point to put me over the edge picking first here you got life on mars followed by queen bitch followed by Bule brothers followed by andy warhol bob dylan and kooks and then i've got changes oh you pretty things quicksand eight line poem and fill your heart remind me bill how can the audience tell us that i won the draft so the audience can vote 
for who won the draft in our poll. Our poll will be posted. There'll be a link in the podcast description for this individual podcast. There will be a link. I'm also going to put some links to some interesting articles and some some videos on Bowie, the Bule Brothers video. So please look at the description of the show episode. There will be some cool links in there, including the link to our song draft poll. All right. Final thoughts. I really just appreciate you bringing this album into my life. It's an excellent album. And while I had never listened to it until a couple of weeks ago, I too have listened to it at least 20 times if not more and it's definitely one that i'm gonna go back to i really enjoy this album and i'm glad that it's now part of my life i feel the same way this album is one of my favorites of all time i also liked what i've learned about bowie in studying up for this podcast today and learning about the history of this album and one of the things that i thought was super interesting and kind of came up recently with bowie selling his catalog bowie's family selling his catalog Mm -hmm. for i think it was 250 million dollars was the agreement that he signed signed with Tony DeFreeze or Tony DeFreeze helped him sign with RCA allowed Bowie to retain the rights mm-hmm. to his music that basically set him up and his family up for this big huge windfall now whereas a lot of artists at the time and a lot of artists over the past years have not owned the rights to their songs in their catalog and have not been in that position so hat tip to Tony DeFreeze for setting Bowie up and helping him not only own the rights to these albums you know this album and the albums afterwards but to also helping him going back and getting the rights to the albums that he had done previously as well. All right. So that leaves us at our final segment where, Bill, you tell us where does this rank on your all-time list? So for me, this is one that has moved so many times in the re-listens. And the ranking that I ultimately landed on with Hunky Dory is it's my fourth ranked album of all time. I think it is a spectacular album. I think it is incredibly underappreciated. I love Ziggy Stardust and Spiders from Mars, but Hunky Dory from track one to track 11, this is just an amazing compilation of different styles of changing as you go through the album of really representing a lot of different types of musicality the piano work on this album the fact that Bowie layers in the sax and the the orchestral arrangements that Mick Ronson did on Life on Mars and the way that he impacted music that came after that just an incredibly impactful album I think it's spectacular and it's my number four album of all time I'd never heard this album until we decided to do this pod and gosh I can't be more pleased that this is now in my life this is just a great album and I can't wait to to be listening to this for the rest of my life. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. So for me, I had been a huge Bowie fan growing up. 80s Bowie was big. The Let's Dance years and whatnot changes Bowie, but I had never heard the totality of this album. This is an amazing, amazing album. All right, so that wraps it up for us today. Thank you for listening. And our next episode will feature Let It Bleed by the Rolling Stones. Look forward to talking to you about it then. Absolutely, can't wait. And we're out.